Good morning, Bloberg. It's lovely to be with you. It's my first time preaching outside, so this is very interesting. I've never preached around a tree before. This is going to be fun. Um, yeah, and I'm hoping, I, I put it on the iPad because I thought if it's windy, my notes are going to blow everywhere, and now I'm worried about the reflection of the sun. I mean, these are the things I did not think about. But anyway, I'm so glad to be here with you today, and thank you to the eldership team for this invitation to come and preach. It's always such a privilege to be able to kind of open up God's Word and, and share what He's saying to us this morning. Um, Nikki reminded me this week that we were with Common Ground Table Viewers, it was then, on the very first launch Sunday, and so it feels like... We are shareholders in this story, and we are watching from the sidelines and cheering you on. We, so, um, we just love to hear what God is doing in this community. Um, we love the people. We, we hear these stories of who God is adding and what God is doing, and it's just so exciting. Um, so, so glad to actually make it today. This is the first time we'd, we've come while you've been in this amazing venue. And then, of course, we're not actually in the venue. We're outside, but it's even better. So I'm so gl- glad we could be here today. And... Um, I've realized the biggest distinction between, there's so much the same between Common Ground Bosch, where we come from, and Common Ground uh, Bloberg. The difference is, is that when we sing Afrikaans songs in Bosch, we have the English line underneath so that we know what we're singing. But here in Bloberg, you know how to sing Afrikaans songs and you don't need the translation. So that's the biggest difference. Otherwise, we feel like we're right at home here. And um, I just want to tell you, but I think that you already know, that you have fantastic leaders in Roger and Nikki. Hey? They are amazing. <laughs> and I'm sure, um, yeah, we just, whenever we talk to them, we are always struck by their love for God and their love for people. And um, just that that's so sincere and authentic. And uh, Alan and I often joke cheekily that if we had to go to another common ground church, this is where we'd come because we'd find it so easy to follow these leaders. So, yeah. And then a special good morning to you. If this is your first time here, maybe it's your first time back in church for a while. Um, any Sunday is a good Sunday to pop in. So we're delighted that you're here and just relax and enjoy the morning together. So I'm going to pray and then we're going to jump into where we are this morning. So, Father, we do want to just thank you for this opportunity to be together. And as we open your word and as we um, try and unpack it a little bit, we ask that you would speak to us, Lord. Thank you for this reminder this morning that we pause what we are doing. We step off the treadmill to engage with you, to hear from you. And so, Holy Spirit, we invite you to come to speak to us this morning, to shape us, to mold us, to make us more like Christ. Thank you, Father. Amen. Okay, so we're in chapter one of this amazing book of James. And I thought I would take just a few moments to just contextualize where we're at in the journey, um, because we were interrupted by Easter. And we kicked off the book, and what we notice immediately about this book of James is that it's an intensely practical book. And it's one of the reasons lots of people love it. It's short, and you can understand what it says, because it's so practical and it's so applicable. And so that's what James loves to do. He likes to take truth and then apply truth, which is essentially wisdom, helping us grow in wisdom. That knowledge isn't just something you acquire, but knowledge is something you try and apply. And so as life happens and you're responding and reacting, you're taking this truth and you're applying it and you're living it out. Remember what we know about James. He's the half-brother of Jesus, okay? 
obviously not biologically because Jesus was born by the Holy Spirit. But um, I remember hearing a preacher say, the fact that James believes that Jesus is who he says he is should be such proof to us. Because have you ever met two brothers where the one brother would admit that the other brother is the Messiah? <laughs> like he totally must have convinced him that he really was the Messiah. And so he's a good evidence that Jesus is who he says he is. And James is this uh, church leader. He leads a church in Jerusalem. He's a pillar in the early church, and he's known for his courage, and he's known for his wisdom. And so he writes this letter. He's writing it to his church. He's writing it to the 12 tribes who've been dispersed. And in a sense, it's his summary of wisdom, words to live by. And so he writes in a way that's um, quite easy to to memorize. He writes these kind of short one-liners. It's very similar to Proverbs. He wants us to get it. He wants to keep it simple so that it's clear in our minds. And um, one thing, as I was researching, um, a little anecdote about James that I didn't know, so maybe you don't know this either. In the early history of the church, it says that James was such a man of prayer that he had these um, thick, large calluses on his knees. Um, and he, they actually looked like the knees of a camel because he prayed so much. And I was like, wow, that is a lot of prayer that actually shapes, changes the shape of your body. So he is, um, as we've looked at chapter one, what we've noticed is that James is talking about real life. And that real life is tough. So he's not pretending that this life of faith is easy. And so we've covered things like struggles and trials and temptations and how we deal with those things. And that's relevant to us because we can all relate to that. Life is tough. You know, if I say that to you this morning, I think like we can all nod along. We can resonate with that. Um, maybe life is tough for you personally, that you're going through a difficult time in your own personal life. Uh, maybe it's a season that you're in. Um, we're coming out of this COVID season, which is great to be coming out of it. But there are kind of implications and the impact of that. We're still feeling that. One of the things uh, we were chatting about is just the financial strain that um, we feel like particularly our nation is under. We did, uh, Alan did a little um, research for me. If you bought a litre of petrol on the 7th of April 2021, you would have paid 16 rand 60 for that litre. A year later, that same litre now costs you 21 rand 24. So that's a 28% increase, and that's just fuel. No wonder we're feeling that kind of strain and that finding it difficult to make ends meet. We think about our nation and the tough things that are happening in our nation. I think we've all been gripped by KZN and what's happening there and the devastation of those floods and the impact of those floods. And then if we look wider into the world, today marks its day 60 of the war in Ukraine. And 46,000 people have died and just over 12 million people have been displaced because of that conflict. And that is tough. Those are difficult things. Those people are enduring trials and struggles. And so we know life is tough. And that's the context that James was writing this letter. And so that's why it's relevant to us. We want to take what James is saying. And his overall theme is this idea of encouraging us to persevere, no matter what we face, persevere. And so in verse 12, he says, remain steadfast, remain steadfast. And back in verse 4, he reminded us why. He said, let steadfastness have its full effect so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That's what's happening here. As we go through life, as we face these things, God is working and he's making us perfect and complete. He's not making us happy and content. No, he's making us perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. He's working out Christ-like maturity in us as we face these tough things. 
And so in this letter, what we're going to see over and over again is James being very honest about us. And he almost shows us these home truths about ourselves. But then he keeps reminding us about truth about God and keeps reminding us about who God is. So last time we were in James, Rigby was here. Do you remember that? Those of you who were here, he spoke specifically about how we handle temptation when temptation comes our way. And he, um, his message, he spoke about the source of temptation, the, course, the force of temptation, and the course of temptation. And he landed that message with some really practical tips, if you remember. And he spoke about the downward spiral that happens. There's these evil desires that lead to sin, that lead to death. And today we're going to focus a little bit more on the upward cycle, uh, the path that leads to life. And so we get to these three verses for today. And uh, thanks to Jolene for reading them earlier. They're on the sheet because sometimes when like, we preach through Scripture, it's helpful to have them in front of you. So they're there. I see Nikki even gave you some space to write lots of notes. So that's great. <laughs> okay. So I'm not going to read them again because we'll kind of read them as we go. But I want to begin with a big idea, the big idea for today and enter the visual props. Okay. So if I had to sum up what today's big idea is, it would be this. Look up. Look up. Okay, James is reminding us, he knows we can get so focused on the situation we find ourselves in and how overwhelming it is, this hardship, this difficulty, this trial, the temptation that we're facing. And he's saying, no, look up and remember. Remember who God is. In the middle of what you're going through, there's some truth to hold on to. Remember. And his main idea, God is good. Okay, so this is the big idea. Look up. Remember, God is good. So when you're going home and you go, what was that sermon about again? Look up, remember, God is good. You just have to remember that. Okay, so let's dive in. Verse 16. Just seven words, very clear. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. In other translations, it's translated brothers and sisters because we know James is writing to the whole church. It's including everybody. And so he starts the section with a strong, urgent appeal. So I've just summed up this verse. Whoops with this. Do not. (laughs) It's a big do not sign. Thanks, my love. So he's saying, don't be deceived. It's so simple. It's so clear. The word that's translated be deceived is used later in chapter five, and it's describing those who wander away from the truth. That's how they are deceived. And so he's saying, don't be deceived. Don't wander away from the truth about God. Okay, don't do it. Now, why do you think uh, James has to be kind of so urgent and so direct in his appeal? Why does he need to say this? Well, I think it's because he knows people and he knows us. He knows what we like, okay? He knows that as humans, we are flawed and we are weak. And so often our response is sinful or inadequate. And he knows how easy it is for us to forget and how easily our hearts and our minds can get swayed. And so he wants to remind us. And I've been thinking about kind of how, how we face, how we respond to trials or difficulties. Things I've noticed in myself, things I've noticed in other people when, when tough times come. And we know that tough times will come. So in John 16, Jesus said, in this life, you will have troubles. So like we should be expecting troubles are going to come. But so often the way we respond can be quite immature or just inaccurate or false. So let me mention just a few of them. Maybe you can relate to some of them. So often we don't think that life really should be unfair. Actually, 
we expect that life should go quite smoothly. Our happiness, our comfort, that's what's most important. And so if something does go wrong, or there's a struggle or a trial, we're a little bit put out. You know, life isn't meant to be like this. This is a bit unfair. Um, and maybe we rail at the injustice of life that we are having to face this trial. Or when things are going badly, we can be tempted to despair or bitterness. We can feel gripped by these overwhelming emotions. Maybe it's pain. Maybe it's paralyzing fear or anxiety or doubt. Now, now those are natural emotions. Those are normal emotions. But we can let them lead us into this unhealthy downward spiral that lands us in this pit of despair. Sometimes in these times of trial, we can lose sight of the good things that God has given us. And we can lose sight that God is at work and that he is actually doing something. And we focus on the bad so much. It consumes all our time. It consumes all our attention that we almost become blind to what God is doing. Or we start to blame God for what is happening. Sometimes we can incorrectly think, well, if we know God and if we're following him, then we should be protected from these things. I mean, surely if God's in control, he's going to protect me from bad stuff happening. And when that doesn't happen, and when we go through the bad time, we can blame God. We can get angry. Or sometimes, and I think this is my one, we just forget about God in the hard thing because we become so self-reliant. Oh, I can do this. I can get through I'm strong enough, I'm capable enough, it's all about me. And we actually shut God out. And we shut out the opportunity to learn from God, to include God, to, to like respond to what He's wanting to do in and through us, through the trial. So all of these are false. All of these are kind of inaccurate ways of looking at troubles and dealing with troubles. And I love the way that Michael Eaton, the late biblical scholar, put it. He said this, We need troubles in order to grow spiritually. If we face them the right way, we shall be perfect, lacking in nothing. Troubles shake us. They disturb our complacency. They make us see that we need Jesus every day. Troubles help us discover our weaknesses. <clears throat> they enable us to see ourselves. They humble us. Troubles help us to depend on God. It is only when we are in difficulty that we are driven to trust in God in a way that we have never done before. And we rejoice not in the trouble itself, but in what we know God is doing. Okay, so remember the big idea. Look up. James, James is wanting to be clear. Don't be deceived. Don't drift. Don't wonder. Don't start to believe the wrong things. And so as we keep going now, James is going to remind us. Okay, look up. Remember, these are some of the things he wants us to remember. Is this for me? I'm going to drink some. Okay, verse 17. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. So from this verse, what I want to do is pick up three truths that James is wanting to teach us about God. Okay, three things that he wants us to remember about God. So number one, he's reminding us of the source of all blessing. God is the source of every good gift, every perfect gift. And so that's what it says. Every good gift, every perfect gift is from above. And he's emphasizing the generosity of God, that God is a giver of gifts, but also the goodness of God, because the gifts that he gives are good and perfect. 
And what he's doing is he's referring back to verse 13. In verse 13, we read, Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. And so James is pointing back to that like immature response to blame God, to say that God's giving me this temptation. And he's, he's correcting it. He's saying, no, God doesn't give temptation. God gives good gifts. He gives perfect gifts. And so he's establishing that contrast and correcting that false idea with the truth. God gives good gifts. God gives perfect gifts. He's a generous God. He's a good God. And so this is the first truth that we're going to take. Okay. God is good. God is good. That's the first thing James is reminding us. Let's look at the second one. Then he goes on to say, these good and perfect gifts are coming down from the Father of lights. Okay, it's like a word picture. And the NIV writes it like this. The Father of the heavenly lights, which is a good kind of paraphrase of the Greek. The heavenly lights, the lights that are in the sky, the sun, the moon, the stars, okay? And you'll see that God's been called the Father of these heavenly lights. And whenever God is presented as Father, it's to emphasize His creator power. He's the Father. He created them. At His word, these things came into being. And so we see these heavenly bodies, these heavenly lights are evidence of the creator power. And so that's what James is trying to remind us here. Okay, God is a powerful creator. Look around you. Today we are enjoying the heavenly body of the sun, okay, and enjoying basking in it. I'm reminding you, God created that. He is powerful. He is in control. He is sovereign. Okay, and so this is the second thing he wants to remind us of. God is sovereign. And Sam Albury, one of the commentators, he wrote a book called James for You. He puts it like this. God is the creator. He is the one who made the stars and fixed them in place. He charts their course. He is the cosmic and glorious God for whom all things are possible. The one who reigns over every corner of the universe. And it is this creator God who wonderfully takes an interest in us. This God loves us and knows us and gives great gifts to us. Yo. And so that's the second truth we take. God is sovereign. And then he concludes this thought. Let's go to the third point. He says this, With whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. The NIV translation says, Who does not change like shifting shadows. And so we have this idea of variation or change or shifting, and that often refers to astronomical phenomena. And so we're linking back to that heavenly lights idea. And the shadow due to change is the, the shadow as in the phases of the moon as it goes through different stages of being in shadow or not in shadow, and also the variation between night and day um, as there is obviously shadow in, at night and not in the day. And so we see here this, this language about this constant motion in the heavenly bodies, and it makes a contrasting point about God because he doesn't shift or move or change or vary like the heavens do. And so James is wanting to establish that contrast, that on the one hand, there's movement. So we see the planets are moving, the stars are moving, our earth is moving, the shadows are shifting and turning, the kind of universe is in the swirl of motion. And all that movement, all that motion is actually reflecting God's creative power because he set it all in motion and it's a sign of his power. But though he made all this motion and movement, 
He is not like it. He is constant. He is steady. He doesn't change his position. And so James is reminding us, this is a God who is steadfast. He is unchanging. And so when we're facing difficulties, that enables us to trust him because he's steady and we can have faith in him. And so this is the third idea that James wants us to remember. That God is unchanging. God is unchanging. He's a God who doesn't just shift and move. And I love how the message paraphrase puts it. There is nothing deceitful in God, nothing two-faced, nothing fickle. Quoting Sam Albury again, God doesn't go through phases. We are not flavor of the month for a time and then cast aside and forgotten about. No, God is always good to us and his commitment to us never falters. That's the third truth. God is unchanging. Okay, so these are the three things James wants to remind us of. God is good. God is sovereign. God is unchanging. There's incredible truths for us to hold on to. And if you're like new here and you're checking out, oh, well, who is this God? This is what our God is like. This is the God we worship. He is good. He is sovereign and he is unchanging. I was thinking as I was um, kind of preparing for this message, I was thinking of these truths and I was thinking about two women who I know that, that kind of resonate and like display these truths. So one of the privileges of pastoral work is that often you get front row seats when people are dealing with difficult stuff, when they're dealing with hard stuff. And so I was thinking of these two women. One of them is a, an, an older woman in our congregation. And she's just received the news that her breast cancer is back. And uh, she's, she fought it many years ago. Now it's back and it's come back quite aggressively. And so this week she has to go for a double mastectomy. And the other is a woman called Sune. Some of you may know Sune, particularly if you watched online. She's the worship leader who's in the wheelchair. And um, this week in Bosch, we're actually launching James. We're a little bit behind you. And so we filmed her testimony again because we wanted to um, kind of find someone who, you know, James begins with, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. And so we needed a story of someone who faces trials of many kinds, but still has joy. And so we asked Sine if she would be willing to share her story. And I was just watching it again. Um, and next, maybe we can share it because it's, it's a great um, kind of video story. And um, she, she just, she tells the story of how she ended up in a wheelchair. She wasn't born like that. Um, she was in her early 20s, adversity, very bad car accident. Her back got broken and she ended up a paraplegic. But then for most of the video, she's just telling the story of God's faithfulness and how what they've learned is as they've looked back on that track record of tough times and how God has been there and brought them through, how it gives them faith for the present difficulty and faith for the future. And as I was thinking of both these women, I was thinking these are two women who, who know these truths, but they live these truths. You know, this isn't just like head knowledge or it isn't just, okay, I'm going to put my head in the sand and hope for the best. And this is just blind faith that actually God's going to come through. No, they, they're in difficult times. And in that, these truths steady them and these truths anchor them. And when I was prepping for today, I felt like God just wanted us to pause here on these truths because there's some people here today who need to be freshly reminded of these things. And you need to almost freshly grab hold of them today because God wants to remind you that he is good. 
He is generous. He has good gifts for you. Maybe you can't really see them at the moment. Maybe life just seems a bit overwhelming and too difficult and too hard. But he is a generous God. He's got good gifts for you. And I think some, some, maybe someone needs to be reminded that God is sovereign and he is in control. And maybe in your situation, it feels like things are out of control and you're struggling to see his hand. You're struggling to see how he's at work. But he wants to remind you today, he is sovereign. And he is unchanging. And I think that there's maybe some people today who just need to hold on to that truth. He is constant and steadfast and worthy of your trust. So just be freshly reminded of those beautiful truths this morning. I'm just going to take a moment to pray here, just while we're here, and then we can carry on. Yeah, Lord, I just want to pray for anyone who's feeling that just a fresh call from you this morning to, to hold on to these truths so that they anchor and steady us. Holy Spirit, you know each person here, you know the situation they're in and what they're facing. Won't you come and minister to us even now? To those who freshly need to hold on to these promises this morning. Thank you, Lord, that they are an anchor for our soul. In the midst of trial and trouble and struggle and hardship, you are present, you are good, you are sovereign, and you are unchanging. And we declare that this morning. Amen. Okay, let's move on to the final verse. Okay, the final verse is not like that first one, which was just seven words so clear. This one's a little bit more tricky. Okay, verse 18. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Okay, so let's unpack this a little bit. It says, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. The NIV translation says, he chose to give us birth through the word of truth. And I like that word birth. Again, we've seen God as creator. Remember, God was the father of the heavenly lights, the one who created them. Now he's the God who's giving birth, who's bringing new life. Okay, it's a beautiful picture. And it's a spiritual concept that we call new birth. And so this is the big idea of verse 18, new birth. So we're going to spend a little bit of time kind of unpacking this picture language. So just as in an ordinary birth, a natural birth, we see something new coming into being. Okay, a new person enters the world when something is born. Um, and so it is when we experience new birth, when we experience salvation, when we respond to Jesus, there is a new life that begins to flow. And a new, in a sense, a new person enters the world because our whole world is turned around. So sometimes the scriptures talk about this as saying we, co we come alive to God. Or the other, um, the other way the scripture puts it, it says we raised from spiritual death to spiritual life. And often you also see this theme of someone being newly created. So th these ideas, new birth, resurrection, life, spiritual resurrection, new creation, you'll see this theme over and over again in Scripture. And so as we look at it, let's first look at the origin of our new birth. Where does this new birth come from? Okay, so the origin is that this has been given to us. Okay, if we read here, we see of his own will, he brought us forth, talking about God. He chose to give us birth. So once again, James is showing it's a gracious gift from God. Okay, in his generosity, he chooses to give us this gift of new birth. It's given of his own free will. Okay, we can't earn it. We don't deserve it. We can't get it by our works or by our obedience. 
No, it's because God is generous and that's what he gives us. And so once again, he's showing us God's generosity, which is unconstrained. It's free. Spurgeon, commenting on these verses, puts it like this. Now, mostly men who are generous need to have their generosity excited. They will need to be waited upon or appeals must be laid before them. They must sometimes be pressed. But of his own will, God did to us all that has been done without any incentive or prompting, moved only by himself because he delighteth in mercy, because his name and his nature are love, because evermore, like the sun, it is natural to him to distribute the beams of his eternal grace. Such a beautiful picture. God can't help but be generous. It is in his name and nature to pour out love and grace and forgiveness to us. It's a gift. So that's how this gift begins. It's given to us. We receive it as a gift. And what is the means by which we get this gift? Okay, it says we get it by the word of truth. Okay, the message of Jesus, what we would call the gospel. Okay, this, the message of Jesus is what, as we believe that, as we respond to that message, so we get given this gift of new birth. And then as that happens, we get the Holy Spirit come and living within us. And it's the Holy Spirit within us that brings about this new birth. It's the Holy Spirit that enables us to fight sin and resist temptation. We get to do that with the help of the Holy Spirit. It's not out of our own kind of grit or determination or effort. I'm going to fight temptation and I'm going to get through this trial. No, the Holy Spirit is at work giving us what we need. And so James is showing us that not only through this new birth are we given the power to live for God, we also give him the desire to live for God, that the Holy Spirit within us gives us those new desires. So remember that downward spiral. There was evil desire leading to sin, leading to death. So now we see there's new birth, which brings about new desires, which lead to new life. And that's that beautiful upward cycle that God has us on. And I just love that we, we're preaching this week after Easter. I love God's choreography in a sense of interrupting our James journey to almost like underline what new birth is. Because if you want to know what new birth is, look at Jesus. He's, the, he's how we get the new birth. And that powerful picture, death in a tomb and then resurrection, life and power. And, th and that's what we, in a sense, are living in. We are dead to ourselves and then there's this new life that comes. So Easter is this incredible expression of new birth. And I felt like, God interrupted us to say, I want you to really get this. And so I'm going to put Easter in the middle where you celebrate what resurrection life really looks like. And then what is the result of this new birth? So it says in there that we become like first fruits, okay? That we should be a kind of first fruits of his creature, creatures. So let's unpack this image of first fruits. Uh, some of you might not not know it, mainly because we're not really an agricultural society anymore. But in, in, in that society, what it meant is the first fruits were the, the first fruits, the initial batch from the crop or from the harvest. And what those first fruits meant is that this was the guarantee, this was the promise that the rest of the harvest, the rest of the crop is on its way. Yes, they're here. It's the first fruits. And then the second thing is that these first fruits were the choicest fruits. They were the best fruits. 
And so in the Old Testament, what would happen is they would take those first fruits and then they would offer them back to God as a dedication, as an offering to him, as a thank you for the, the harvest that was coming. So keep those two ideas in mind. Okay, The first fruits, promising, guaranteeing that there's more to come. And then the choicest fruits, the best fruits. Because as we unpack this, mind some of the richness of this image, we're going to see both of those things at work. So our new life, first idea, I've got four to share with you. Our new life is just the beginning of what God is up to. So he, he extends His grace to us as people. We respond to the gospel. We get the salvation. We get this new birth. And He says that is a down payment. It's a foretaste. It's a first fruit of the rest of my plan. Okay, Because I'm doing more. I'm not just bringing people to salvation. I want to redeem the whole of creation. I want to restore the whole of creation to what it should have been like in the Garden of Eden. Okay, So he's saying there's a, there's a plan that's coming that is a new heaven and a new earth. There's so much more to come. I'm starting with you, but you are the first fruits for the more to come. There's a greater harvest. There's renewal of all things. It's a beautiful promise. The second idea is that James is referring to his own kind of generation of believers. Remember the context. He's writing to what were essentially believers from a Jewish background. His church is in Jerusalem, so mainly believers from a Jewish background. He's writing to the tribes who've been scattered, mainly believers from a Jewish background. He's saying, this generation, you are the first fruits, okay? Because there's a bigger harvest to come. And that bigger harvest is going to include all people and all nations. It's going to include the Gentiles. He's saying, you're a first fruit. There's more to come. And we know, we know that because we're living in the reality of that now. The third idea is a bit more of a personal one. That these first fruits in my life, your life, they are a sign that there is more to come. So Jesus rescues us. He redeems us. But that's just a first fruit because it says, he who began the good work will carry it on to completion. So he gives you new life, but it's not like, okay, that's it. No, there's more to come. He's going to continue to work. He's going to continue to make you more like Christ in this life and in the life to come. So personally, we can see that. We are a first fruit. What's happening in us is a first fruit. And for the rest of our lives, there's a greater harvest to come. So we embrace what God is doing because this is just a first fruit. There's more to come. And finally, that fourth idea Think of that, the, the picture of the first fruits being the choicest, being the best fruits. And so this is kind of the purpose that we have. If we find Jesus, if we dedicate ourselves to him, if we follow him and we totally dedicate it to him, we are meant to be, we are designed to be the first fruit, the best, the choicest. So some translations translate this verse as we are the prized possession. We are the crown of all he has created because we are his first fruits. We are the best of. Yo, and that gives us identity. That gives us purpose and meaning like nothing ever could, because, hey, I'm a first fruit. <laughs> you know, I'm the prized possession. I'm the crown of all he has created. It doesn't always seem like it, I know, but that's who we are. It's such a powerful image. Okay, so let me close. I'm going to read the verses again, but I'm going to kind of read it in the Lou Amplified version <laughs> where we pick up all of the things we've covered today just to kind of cement it for us. So he says, do not be deceived. Don't drift. Don't wonder. Don't start to believe false things. Oh, this is going to drive me mad. Sorry. Okay, let me try that again. 
Thanks, Nix. Okay, do not be deceived. Don't drift, don't wonder, don't start to believe false things. My beloved brothers, my sisters, look up. Every good gift, every perfect gift is from, a, from above. Remember, God is generous. God is good. Every good and perfect gift is coming down from the Father of lights, the Father of the heavenly lights. Remember, God is creator. He is powerful. He is in control. He is sovereign. With him, there is no variation or shadow due to change. He does not change like shifting shadows. He is constant. He is steadfast. Remember, God is unchanging. And of his own will, he brought us forth. He chose to give us birth. It's a gift. There's new birth given by God. And you get this new birth. You get this new life, the Holy Spirit, by the word of truth, as you believe the gospel message. Why? So that you can be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. The promise, the guarantee of the more to come for you, for all people, for all nations, for the whole of creation. But you are the prized possession, the crown of all he has created. These are the truths that God wants to remind us of today. It's almost like when we gather as a church, we align ourselves again. We spend a week, maybe we get a little bit distracted, we drift, we're on that treadmill. And then Sunday comes and we get to pause, we get to sit under the word and we get to align ourselves again to the truth of God's word. And I've said a lot today, what is God saying to you this morning? What is the truth he wants to speak freshly into your life? Let's pray. Yeah, Lord, we just take a moment to pause and to, to just reflect on what it is you want to highlight to us this morning. Personally, each one of us. Align our hearts afresh, Lord, to truth, to who you are. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for the truths you've reminded us of this morning. Help us to look up. Help us to notice you. Help us to see who you truly are, to be reminded of you as a good God, a sovereign God, an unchanging God. And let that settle us this morning. Thank you for this promise that you are at work, giving us new birth, making us a first fruit. Oh, there's so much beauty in that. There's so much power in that. Continue to do your work in and through us, we pray. Amen. Thank you, Louise. Let's give her a, an encouraging hand.